Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. All right, um, here's what we're doing for the summer, just in case you missed. We are, are doing something a bit different with the sermons. Uh, we're calling it the One Word Campaign, but in essence, here's what it is. We are bringing you every week individual words that are keys to the Christian life. Um, some of them are right out of Scripture, like the one that you'll hear today, which is unity. Um, others of them are theological principles, but these are words we can't live without in the Christian life, understanding, walking in them. And so, the, uh, for the next two weeks, this week we have unity, and next week is Mother's Day, right? I'm just letting every, there's your, I just reminded everybody. So, you need to come out next week to honor your mother's um, and I tell you that because when you hear what the title is next week, you might be, uh, you know, you might be tempted to stay home. It's humility. So we're hitting you with a, I know, it's like one of those things, you don't pray for patience, you don't pray for humility, but unity and humility go together like hand and glove. So we want to invite you out for this kind of two-parter that fits together beautifully here. Um, and I will be preaching next week, but this week you have a treat. Uh, in the EPC Book of Order, when it comes to elders, one of the things that it encourages for elders is uh, not only that they shepherd and help look after the, the, the sick and the wayward and have the mind of Christ and deliberate and decide and pray, but it, it's actually that they preach and teach. But it is still very rare to go into an EPC church and actually see an elder bring a sermon. Um, elders are, well, you say, oh, sure, I'll teach a Sunday school class, but preach, no way. Well, today, one of our elders is going to preach. Uh, Mr. Fred Teagle, if you'll come up here, I'm going to pray for him. And, and I pointed that out to you just with Fred being an elder because it is an incredible honor to have one of our shepherds, uh, one of our elder shepherds just do this. So, Fred, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to try and, Harrison and I will get you set up in whatever distance works for you. You have to almost eat the mic. That's exactly right. So this will be a little snack before lunch. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for our elders. And right now in Jesus' name, I, I bless the session of this church. Um, not just the current seated session, but Lord, every, everyone who has served in times past to, to govern, to shepherd the church. Lord, I thank you that, that um, God, your calling, your gifting has been evident in our session. And Today, Lord, we just ask you to, to bless Fred, to anoint him freshly. I thank you that, that this moment is not about performance. Um, it's not about uh, impressing anyone. This is about just proclaiming the Word of God. And so, Lord, I, I thank you that your perfect love just right now come and just take away any nerves, any sense of anything else but this message that you have put in his heart. And God, I thank you that this is a burning word you've given him. Um, and so, God, we just bless and say, Lord, we're here to, we're, we are here to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm fairly confident that mo when most of you came in this morning, you had no idea I'd be speaking. I've done my best to keep it that way. <laughs> if anyone mentioned the fact in the last week or so, I would admonish them to keep it to themselves. And let me share a little joke with you that explains why. A young Methodist pastor is sent to a small church and uh, almost immediately 
the statistics started ticking up. There was more attendance, more giving, more baptisms. And so the, uh, the bishop sends a letter to him saying that he's going to come and visit on a certain Sunday. The bishop comes and preaches and the attendance is noticeably off. And after the service, after everyone's been greeted, the bishop turns to the young pastor and says, son, didn't you tell them I was coming? And he says, no, sir. I don't know who told them. (laughs) (laughs) Continuing on the side of levity for a moment, uh, I want to share an email exchange between our pastor and me email from Pastor Fred. I want to make sure you're going to preach next week. If so, my only stipulation is you stand to preach this time. And then love your brother Steve. My response, Steve, I planned, yes, I plan to preach on May 5th. I am grateful for the opportunity. I'm happy to stand. In living memory, I have only preached twice. The first time I sat on a tall stool, the second time I stood. Since I am less than animated, you probably can't remember the difference. (laughs) I think the request that I stand was a safety issue. If I happen to stop breathing during one of my long pauses, then I'll fall over and someone will come and help. (laughs) The sermon today is titled, The Heart of the Matter. You may have noticed that the text is from the fourth chapter of Ephesians. It's a very rich chapter, and I will barely be able to do it justice in the 90 minutes I've been given. Well, it's good to see you're still awake. I'd like to make a little disclaimer here. We don't have 90 minutes, and that still wouldn't do the subject justice. So though I'd like to, and when I was rehearsing, I tried to, I will not be reading all the scripture that you're going to see on screen. Part of that has to do with time. Part of it has to do with the fact that Greek, when, especially Paul's Greek, when translated into English, creates some, what shall I call them, cumbersome sentences. Uh, so, but just remember, uh, as Mark Twain is reported to have said, it's not the things which I understand in the Bible which trouble me that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things I do understand. So anything of significance, I'm sure you'll be able to understand. So why am I standing in front of you this morning? The short answer is, God told me to. So several months ago, I asked the session if I might speak and was given the okay. I spent the time between then and now studying this book. The reason I believe 
that the Lord quicken this passage to my heart can easily be, be explained with a watermelon. Can I get my watermelon slide? Ah, there we go. It's a watermelon. Who likes to eat watermelon? Which among us, if we were honest, has been guilty of sneaking to the fridge in the middle of the night and cutting the heart out of the watermelon? <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's what we're doing today. Ephesians is one of the, is one of the heart books of the New Testament particularly concerning the church. And Ephesians 4 is the heart of Ephesians. To give you a little background, there is a, an early 20th century Chinese Christian pastor and teacher named Watchman Nee. Do I have Watchman behind me? Okay. He wrote an excellent commentary on Ephesians. The title is Sit, Walk, Stand. And I, you can't, I'm sure you can't read that, but okay. Well, I can't read the one in front of me. Anyway, um, <clears throat> in these three words, knee summarizes the book of Ephesians. Number one, Christ sits on the throne of heaven. God seated him, Christ, at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.20. Two, we walk out the calling to which we were called. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That's Ephesians 4.1. And three, Christ, through Christ we stand against Satan and all the evil he can muster. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do, wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But today we focus on the heart of the matter, how we walk. So let's look at this pivotal chapter, this heart of the matter. Let's begin with verse 1. By the way, if my voice gets a little quavery, it's not fear. Uh, my mother, whenever the Spirit of God would move on her, would burst into laughter. When the Spirit... When the spirit moves on me, I tend to cry.
Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Many years ago, there was a film processing company called Photomat. As a matter of fact, one of the little kiosks is still out in the shopping center next door. But Photomat had a radio commercial that consisted of a dialogue between a boy and his little sister. And he, he would say, don't you want quick processing and high quality photographs at low prices? <coughs> she replied, yes but I'm not good at any of those things. <laughs> well, when I look at the life that Paul is laying out for us to live in Ephesians, I have to say, yes, but I'm not good at any of those things. But the Holy Spirit is reminding me, yes, but the indwelling Holy Spirit is. He, it is he who keeps us from a sense of despair when we look at the life God is calling us to live, because it is he who makes our calling possible. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See, I told you Paul was a Southerner. <laughs> well, if I haven't, I've told everyone else. Uh, as I looked at these verses, I counted the word one seven times. And I, as I often do, I take the little online tools that are available to me. And I realized that this word one was not actually one word, that there are actually three different words translated one in this passage. And I, you know, so, Having done that little research, I've kind of retranslated this verse. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in only one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of everyone, who is above everyone and through everyone, and in every one of you. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And here Paul is quoting Psalm 68, 18. Now this, 
Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. In this passage, Paul teaches us three things. One, Christ is the giver of gifts. Two, how high was the cost? And therefore, how high the value of those gifts? Or as Paul said in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and came became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Three, Christ has the authority to give gifts. By fulfilling his prophetic role, as was outlined in Psalm 68, he has become the conqueror of sin and death and his rightful place is at the head of the church, his body. In the three times in his epistles, when Paul expands on spiritual gifts, he uses the analogy of the human body, the body of Christ. Each time he credits a member of the Godhead as the gift giver. In Romans 12, it is God the Father. In Corinthians 12, it is the Holy Spirit. Here in Ephesians, he makes the, the case that Christ is the giver. Then he goes on to explain why, why Christ gave the gifts that he gave. So let's look at this passage again, but this time as an outline. Unfortunately, the slide is not an outline, so that's my fault. Uh, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? One, for the equipping of the saints for the ministry. Two, for the edification of the body of Christ. Three, till we all come to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. Four, to be a perfect man. Now, I don't think that means each of us becomes a perfect man, but I think the body of Christ becomes a perfect man with Christ as the head. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that five, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about 
by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body and edifying itself in love. If anyone doesn't know that word edify, it means build up. We, the church, are given gifts of leadership to build up the church so that we, the members of the church, function as the parts of the body of Christ and fulfill his ministry on earth. I believe the greatest heresy of the 20th century church is the idea of a professional clergy. That is, that we have to depend on professional staff to do the work of the church. Paul obviously thought differently. He says Christ gave us leaders to equip us to do ministry. And when we think we can just sit back and let leadership carry the load, we are in direct disobedience to the will of Christ. I believe this is a lie generated in the pit of hell. Like most heresies, it came from trying to fit into the philosophy of its time, which at that time was industry and business. Christ did ordain leadership for the church, but Paul clearly says why. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Years ago, you know, at my age, almost everything was years ago. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> I took a management seminar. My company spent several hundred dollars. I spent four afternoons after work in a dingy little meeting room. And after all that effort and expense, I came away with one gem that has lasted the years, and that is every employee wants to know two things. What do you want me to do? How am I doing? You know, that seems simple, but I found very few managers who are able to do it. Paul is the exception. You have no doubt in your mind where you stand when Paul gets finished. I'm going to skip a few verses here because it gets a little cumbersome, but I have a few lines highlighted. He's, Paul says that you put off concerning your former contact. That means the way you acted when you were Gentiles, worldly people, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind 
that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in truth, in true righteousness and holiness. What is righteousness? Very simply, it's being in a right relationship with God. It's not mysterious. You are righteous when you are right with God. What does righteous, on what does righteousness depend? It's a one word answer. Anyone want to guess? That's not bad. God. God is the source of righteousness. We cannot be righteous on our own. We can no more become righteous on our own than we can levitate by pulling up on our shoestrings. <clears throat> it just isn't going to happen. What is holiness? It is contact with that which is holy. In a Palm Sunday sermon a few years ago, the pastor listed 11 things in the story of the triumphal entry that were holy. One of them was the donkey. There's my donkey. How do you make a donkey holy? It's, it's very simple. You make a donkey holy the same way you make me holy. You put it in contact with Jesus. There is no holiness out of contact with Jesus. Anything that claims to be holiness that depends on rules, regulations, wear this, don't wear that, eat this, don't eat that, that's a fraud. Contact with Jesus is holiness. Back to the scripture. Therefore, put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth to with his neighbor, for you are members of one another. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. I once saw a little piece of needlework in a pastor's office. It said, Anger is the wind that blows out the candle of the mind. Let him who stole steal no longer. You know, this little phrase is enough for me to bypass the rest of the... Because I don't steal, unless I'm really honest with myself. And I think about all the times when I let my tithes slide. That's, according to Malachi, that's not stealing, it's robbery. But anyway, he says, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now there's a unique idea. We work so we can be generous. 
well, what about my 75-inch smart TV? To paraphrase Sammy the Squirrel, I like the 75-inch TV. And what about that CX, that Mazda CX-5 that I'm lusting after? It's not that God has anything against any particular material. What he wants in us is a generous heart. You know, you don't have to be poor to be stingy. You don't have to be rich to be generous. It's all a matter of how God works on your heart. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impact grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, this is one of those verses that I like to go back to the King James because I love the poetry. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. For the last half century, the most defining characteristic of the American church has been anger. We are angry at the culture for ignoring us. The day of Christendom is over. The church is no longer the dominant influence in the culture, and we are pissed off. We are angry at pagans for acting like pagans. Now, how do you expect worldly people to act if not worldly? And how does being angry at them bring them any closer to Jesus? We are angry at each other for all kinds of reasons. We're angry at people for wanting to change the church. Some of us are angry at people for not wanting to change the church. We are often, far too often, offended with one another over reasons that are at best selfish, often unkind, and sometimes just silly. I want to imagine, if you will, kind of close your eyes and give this some thought, uh, that you have found a special someone in your life. Then imagine that he or she has invited you to go home to meet the family. As you walk in the door, 
you are met with polite but, con- but cool indifference. As the visit progresses, you notice that various members of the family are staring at one another in cold contempt while maintaining a polite facade. Then, petty sniping begins. This is followed by an outburst of rage. Then everything returns to an uncomfortable calm. Tell me, what are your thoughts about joining that family? No matter how much you might be attracted to or even in love with the person who brought you there. Mahatma Gandhi was quoted as saying, I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. There is a traditional church story which says the Apostle John, when he was an old man living in Ephesus, was too weak to walk to the church meetings so the younger disciples would come and carry him on a bed to the services. And each week, he would say exactly the same thing. Little children love one another. And he would repeat it. Little children love one another. After a period of time, the disciples began to grow weary with only getting one message. They didn't realize that uh, maybe they were getting one message for a reason. But they said, Master, why do you only say this? And his response was, because the Lord commanded it. And if you do this, it is enough. So let's look at what the Lord commanded in the words of John the Apostle. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And most importantly, by this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If you don't remember anything else I've said today, remember this, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. If we really want revival, as we claim we do, we only have to do one thing, love one another. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.